Father, thank you that you care not only for people, but you care for the whole of the creation. You do water it, you nourish it, and you do it in some places at some times to the extent that that creation seems to shout for joy at your goodness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that the day is coming when the whole of the creation, being freed from its bondage to decay, being delivered from the curse, will be restored. And we, in the midst of it, together with it, will speak back and reflect your glory back to you without any limitation or hindrance. We long for that day. Until it comes, use us and these gifts to herald the hope of that day. We ask in your name. Amen. Please turn with me to John chapter 8. And we will read together from John's Gospel, verses 31 to 38 of John 8. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. This is the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May he grant us hearts to receive it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please help us as we come to this, your word. I pray for each of us that um, in our respective ways, according to our individual need, our hearts would be set even more at liberty, made more free because we've considered this passage and some of its implications together. And I pray for us that as we go out into this world from this place, We would understand, oh God, help us to see this, believe this, that we have something to offer this world around us. Be with us, Lord Jesus, to these ends we ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. uh, We've been away from Romans uh, for several weeks. Maybe that's a relief to you. Um, And we're going to get back to Romans, um, probably not next week, because next week we're going to have this great privilege of of ordaining uh, and installing officers, deacons in the life of this church. And I think 
the, the sermon next week will, will have to do with that. But then the following week, uh, as we get into July, we'll get back into Romans and we'll kind of take a peek back at Romans 7 and then we'll move on into Romans 8. And uh, again, maybe before Jesus comes back, we'll finish Romans. Uh, but I want to look at uh, this passage today, and here's why. Um, every once in a while it occurs to me that it's, um, it's a helpful thing to take a step back, and, and this is what I mean by that. Most of us here, um, and I say this because I, I, I know you pretty well, um, most of us here come to the Bible with the conviction or the belief that the Bible is true. Um, and, and true in this sense, true in the sense uh, that Francis Schaeffer liked to talk about it. Uh, we come to the Bible, most of us, with this conviction that the Bible is true truth, true uh, with a capital T, true um, not because I happen to believe it um, the way uh, some read the bumper sticker that maybe some of you have seen, you know, this sort of classic, famous bumper sticker. Um, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. You know, that, that bumper sticker. And I, I, maybe you've heard this. I've heard a couple of people observe that, that actually the middle term of that bumper sticker needs to be removed because what I believe about the Bible doesn't have anything to do with its truth, right? It doesn't become true because I believe it. So really the bumper sticker probably should read, the Bible says it, that settles it. Whether I happen to believe it or not. Now, that particular view of truth, that particular understanding of the Bible, I I trust you understand, is increasingly a minority view. It's increasingly a minority view. There was a time when, when it may have been the majority view, whether people actually did what the Bible enjoined them to do, whether they actually, in fact, believed what the Bible enjoined them to believe. There was probably a time in this country when if you had asked people, is the Bible the Word of God? Is it true? And is it binding for you, whether you really believe and embrace it or not, the majority of people probably would have said yes. But we don't live in that kind of world anymore. Um, And it seems to me that it's a good thing every once in a while for us to take a step back and just remind ourselves of the fact that we don't live in that kind of world We live in a world in which truth really is a very personal and even subjective sort of thing. Truth isn't something that is out there, outside my own head, outside your head. Something before which we both must bow, before which or with which we both must come to terms. And there's a long history and a whole lot of stuff that could be said with respect to this that we don't need to get into this morning because I think our experience out in the world um, is all the indication we need that what I'm suggesting to you is true. Uh, We live in a world in which that former scenario really isn't true or accurate, but rather we live in a world in which truth really has become a very personal and subjective thing. And 
And people are very happy for you to believe what you want to believe, but they become very offended when you suggest even slightly or subtly that what they believe is actually something that you ought to believe as well. But that's what we are as Christians. That's what we think. When we come to the Bible, we do come to this idea, this notion, that there is objective truth and it exists outside my own head And it is something that is binding. It is something that exists objectively and as true, whether I like it or not, believe it or not, embrace it or not, submit to it or not. Out in the world, it's a very different place. And again, I feel every once in a while the need to take a step back because I don't think that it's being responsible to our calling as Christians simply to preach the Bible or talk about the Bible without considering those who are hearing us when we preach the Bible or talk about the Bible. And I want to do that this morning for just a few minutes. I can't resolve what is a very complex and, and hard question in 30 minutes. There are lots of different angles from which one can come at this particular issue, thinking about how we interact with folks who have a very different understanding of truth from the understanding that we have. This is just one tack, one angle from which to view this and think about this. And I want to use this verse from John's Gospel as a way to to kind of leap into this and, and think about this whole matter. This 32nd verse from John chapter 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now just just think with me about that for a second, for a few minutes. Think of the three terms that dominate that verse. Freedom. Start at the end, and let's work back to the beginning. Freedom. Who doesn't want to be free? Who doesn't want to be free? Think of the phenomenal promise that there is in this verse. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Think of what a staggering thing it is. Jesus in this passage is speaking to some Jews who are very, very familiar with the Old Testament, with the law, with Moses, with the whole history of Israel. Jesus, and they're offended at what Jesus says to them. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Who are you to tell us by implication that we are in some sort of bondage and that you have something that will in fact set us free? I mean, I, I really challenge you to, 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 to interact with a, with a non-church person. I mean, go find somebody. You know, one of the things that happens to us when we become Christians and we get immersed in the church is that we lose contact with the unbelieving world. Go find some folks 
who really do have questions about these things and make a statement like this. I know something that you may not know. And if you know this thing, you will be set free. I'll tell you, folks will get offended. They'll get offended. And these folks were offended. But think about it. Freedom, what what a stunning promise it is. One of my, um, you, I, maybe I've referred to this here. I'm, I'm not sure. I can never remember when I refer to what or where. Uh, but, but I know that you know that I have a handful of favorite films, right, or stories or, or myths or whatever. I mean, one of my favorites, you know, is Robin Hood. It's right at the top, you know. I love the story of Robin Hood because it's a gospel story, right? Sherwood Forest labors under a curse. It labors under the rule and reign of the evil Prince John. But what's the hope in Robin Hood? That the rightful king, the one who rightfully sits upon the throne, will return. And when he returns, what happens? The evil Prince John gets tossed into the slammer. The sheriff of Nottingham no longer patrols Sherwood Forest overtaxing people, oppressing people, burdening people. When the king comes back, what happens? Freedom. Who doesn't want to be free? Here's another one of my favorite films. You know this too, Shawshank Redemption. I always caution you about it and warn you to be careful. There is some raw stuff in it. But there are some moments of exquisite beauty, and one of those moments is the time, the moment in the scene When Andy Dufresne locks himself in the warden's office, opening these boxes of books, he also finds boxes of records, and one of the records in one of the boxes is the marriage of Figaro. And he knows Mozart. He knows the marriage of Figaro. And he knows this beautiful duet that the soprano and the contralto sing. And he puts the record on the record player. And he starts to play it, and he pipes it through the PA system, out into the whole of the prison. And it causes, you remember the scene? It causes all of those inmates to stop in their tracks as they listen to this glorious music soaring over the prison. And this is Morgan Freeman's little soliloquy, his little speech. I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are better left unsaid. I'd like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and it makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. It was as if some beautiful bird had flapped into our drab little cage and made these walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. Everybody wants to be free. 
You know, the great irony is the possibility exists that you can be free and still be in prison. And the possibility exists that you can be in prison and be free. Don't we know that? I don't know. I hate to I hate to mention unhappy things on Father's Day. <laughs> but isn't the death of Joe Altieri a sober, painful reminder that you can be free and not free at the same time? You can be so horribly imprisoned, so horribly imprisoned in the midst of unbelievable freedom, the kind of freedom that the rest of the world covets. I just got back from Tanzania. You know this. Life is hard in Tanzania. But you know what's interesting? And this isn't just an observation. I've had conversations with Bishop Peter Ketula about this. You know what's interesting about Tanzania? Suicide is very, very, very rare. Do you know where people take their lives? Japan, the United States, Europe. You can be imprisoned in the midst of unbelievable freedom, and you can be free. In the midst of unbelievably imprisoning circumstances. How free is our culture, folks? How free are the people we rub shoulders with every single day? I mean, I could spend the rest of the time this morning just talking about this, talking about the ache that Morgan Freeman talks about. Talk about the ache that C.S. Lewis talks about. Here's a great quote. It's not as clear or maybe as easy to understand as Morgan Freeman's, but C.S. Lewis, apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. Folks, there's an ache in the soul. I, I kind of created a sermon series this morning. That I mean, okay, how much time do you have? I'll preach all of them. There's an ache in our souls. There's an ache in our souls in this culture. There's an ache in the souls, in the hearts of those you rub shoulders with every single day. And they long for freedom. So how do you get freedom? How do you get free? Go back to the first term of the verse. 
Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know. You will know. Folks, we are knowers. We have knowers and we are knowers. We have an insatiable appetite for knowing. Don't we? It's insatiable. Other forms of life, I think, know things. I I think they know things. Our dog, Maggie, who is in a box now, died several years ago. Our dog, Maggie, knew when we came home. The garage door would go up. She's not supposed to be on the couch in the living room. When the garage door went up, she would get off the couch and she would go lie someplace else in the house pretending that she had been sleeping there the whole day. How do I know that she was on the couch? Because she doesn't think about dog hair. Okay, so she knows that when the garage door comes up, it's time to find a safe place because if she's on the couch when we come home, that is not a safe place. That's a punishable offense, right? She knows. She knows some things. She knows her name. When we call, she comes. She responds. She knows when it's dinner time. She just makes an appearance about 6 o'clock in the evening. When we were living in Indiana, somehow, for some period of time, she knew when it was 10 o'clock because she would come get us and say, with this wagging tail and these big, beautiful eyes, it's time to go for a walk. So at some level, other forms of life know, but I don't think they know in the ways that we know. For example, I never saw Maggie get in touch with her friend Callie, who lived down the street, and get the other friends from the neighborhood together to gossip over a bowl of dog food about the other dogs in the neighborhood. Right? But we do those kinds of things. We stand in the line at Publix. Because, well, not because we stand in the line, because we've purchased some things. But while we're standing in the line at Publix, we can't help but look at all of the news rags that are there, right? To learn the latest about royalty or movie stars. We have this insatiable appetite to know not not only important things, but really trivial and silly things. We want to know. Inquiring minds want to know. We want to know more significant and wonderful things, too. We want to know more mysterious stuff. We want to try to plumb the depths of the more mysterious stuff. We want to try to understand the world in which we live, the place in which we live. My friend Mike Francis, with whom I spent a good bit of time along with Zach at General Assembly, a week or so ago, Mike Francis, who preached my installation service here a few years ago. Mike reads books about the universe, astronomy, and astrophysics and stuff. He reads books about stuff that I don't get. I don't understand that stuff. But he's this sort of fount of information about things. Did you know 
Did you know that the sun consumes 700 billion tons of hydrogen every second? Converting that hydrogen into helium, which produces the energy that travels 93 million miles to keep this little sphere that we live on warm. That's a lot of hydrogen. And that's one medium-sized star in a galaxy filled with millions of stars, a galaxy which finds itself in the midst of a universe with billions of galaxies. Do the math, friends. It's staggering. Did you know that the universe, by current estimates, is 150 billion light years across? Did you know that? 150 billion light years. Now, here's, here's a, you know, this will challenge your capacities for comprehension. Remember what a light year is. I had to write this stuff down. Remember what a light year is. A light year is light, is the speed at which light travels, right, which is 186,000 miles per second, okay? 186,000 miles per second. So light travels... In one year, 1,580,000,000 miles. 1,580,000,000 miles. And the universe, by current estimates, is 150 billion light years across. Did you know that? Now, why all these silly little illustrations? Here's why. We have an insatiable appetite for knowing. And when we seek to know, what is it that we seek to know? We seek to know what is true. We seek to know what is true. And we keep pressing the limits of what we know so that we can know more. And we seek to know more so that we can know the world in which we live more Truly, more accurately. Mike told me, Mike Francis told me, that there are so many things in modern physics, modern astronomy, that are simply not understood. One of them is this, something called dark matter. Dark matter. The way the astronomers understand the universe to be constructed requires that there be more mass in the universe than can be accounted for in terms of planets and stars and moons and all of the rest. In fact, it's a big, big number that is required to account for the structure of the universe as it is currently. And what they call this stuff is dark matter. They don't understand it. They can't measure it. They can't see it. They can't explain it. It is a mystery. And they keep pressing farther and farther and deeper and deeper. Why? In order to know things truly. Truly. 
People don't seek to know stuff falsely. They seek to know things so that they might know them truly. It's a fascinating thing to me that very, I, again, I'm not here to pick a fight. I'm not here to pick a fight. It is a fascinating thing to me that very, very smart people who think very, very deep thoughts and who have mental capabilities that make me feel like a midget, who seek to know the world in which they live truly and accurately will out of the other side of their mouths say that truth does not exist. It doesn't exist. Truth about God. Truth about the nature of human nature. Truth about things like love and justice and mercy, which are all a function of neurology and biochemistry. Things which are simply somehow in us as survival instincts, but which have no real ultimate meaning. It is amazing to me that people who think so deeply and so profoundly will actually argue that when it comes to those things, there is no objective reality, there is no objective truth. And what is even more stunning to me, those who are arguing that there is no objective truth, that things like love and mercy and justice and compassion, things like the existence of God and the dignity of a human being, the essential, hate to use a big word, ontological dignity of a human being, the intrinsic value and worth of a human being, distinguishing and separating a human being from everything else in the whole of the creation. They will seek to persuade me that there is no objective reality, no objective truth with respect to those things. This is the most stunning thing. They will try to persuade me of their position. And I ask why? If you take your position, there is nothing to be persuaded of. But they continue to seek to persuade me. We are insatiably driven to know and to know things truly. And here is where, here is where Christianity parts company with everything else. And this, my friends, Again, this is just one angle at which to come at this whole issue. But this is what we have to say to the world around us. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The distinctive feature of Christianity is this. In Christianity, and I know, I know you'll say, well, of course, In Christianity, we do not seek to know truths. That's not what this is about. In Christianity, truth 
is a person. Truth is a person. The infinite personal person who is really there. Who exists outside my own head, outside your own head. Who is the only reality sufficient to explain everything that is really there. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know, Jesus is saying, you will know a person. I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, what what we have to say to people is not that we have a better set of propositions. I think we do. Now, we, I think Jesus does. It's not that we have a better ethic. I think Jesus does. Again, it isn't that we have a set of truth propositions. What we have to offer people is a person, the infinite, eternal person who's made them, formed them, shaped them, who is himself the truth, the reality, who explains and defines everything else. And to know him is to know freedom. To know him is to know life. To know him is to know the purpose for which you and everything else have been made. So you see, the Bible, the Bible is not an operating manual. It drives me nuts when people refer to the Bible in the way they refer to the manual that comes with a lawnmower. The Bible isn't a set of, it's not ethics, it's not truth. The Bible, what the Bible does from its very beginning is help me see that there is someone at home in the universe who stands behind everything that is here, who explains why everything is here. And the Bible tells me why everything went wrong and and there isn't anybody who doesn't know that there is something desperately wrong. And in the midst of that wrongness, the Bible gives me the promise, the promise of a person who is going to come and he's going to put everything right. He's going to put everything right. And the New Testament is a record and interpretation of his coming. The Old Testament is the promise of His coming. The New Testament is the record of His having come and the interpretation of the significance of that coming. The Bible is about a person. The person who stands at the center of the whole of human history. Listen to some of these words. You know, the reason we can talk to people in this way about these things is because they are human beings created in the image of this infinite personal God who is really there. They may not know that. They may not believe that. But they cannot escape who they are. That's what Francis Schaeffer used to say. Man cannot escape his own mannishness. Listen to these tender words. Listen to these words from this Jesus. This person, first promised, who then came, who stands at the center. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him 
authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. See, here, here's the next three hours. The next three hours, and in frankly, the rest of my life, is given to seeking to plumb the depths of what it means to possess eternal life. Eternal life isn't duration, friends. Eternal life is being gathered up into the fellowship of the Father and the Son to behold their love for one another and to find that their love for one another is in fact the very love with which they love their creatures. It's easier to get your mind around 150 billion light years than it is to get your mind around the core and heart of Christianity, which is to be gathered up into the love which the Father has for the Son and which the Son has for the Father and to enjoy and delight in that love forever. Verses 9 to 11. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but I am praying for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I don't ask for them alone. But I ask for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. O oh, Father, O oh, Father, give me this one last thing. Hear this one last prayer before I go to the cross. I want them to be with me where I am, that they might see my glory. the glory that you have given me because you loved me. That is the heart and soul of Christianity. And as I go out into the world, I am speaking to people who long, who long to be that free, that love, that's secure. There is truth. It can be known. It is Jesus. And to know Him is to be free indeed.
Father, please help us as we go out into the world. Help us to know. Help us to know that there are people out there in whose hearts you are working. And work in those hearts, O God. And give us, give us courage. Give us grace to speak. Give us wisdom to say the right things. So that this wonderful truth may penetrate deep into the hearts of those who so desperately long to be free. Thank you, Jesus. That in knowing you, there is freedom indeed. Be with us, we pray, through the rest of this day. We ask in your name. Amen. Please join me as we.